Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. My name is Lindsay Garino, and I am an associate professor of dance in the Department of Music, Theater, and Dance at Salve Regina University. Uh, today, I am here with my colleague, Timothy Neary, professor of history and coordinator of American history at Salve Regina University. And I'm looking forward to talking to him about his book, Crossing Parish Boundaries. Thank you, Tim, for having this conversation today. Hi, Lindsay. Thanks so much. Um, in these COVID-19 times, I wish we could be in the same room, but I appreciate you taking the time. I know with your busy schedule, you're working on a book of your own um, to speak with me, so I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, I'm grateful for all of the conversations that we've been engaged in in recent months, um, especially at Salve Regina, how we are um talking about race quite often in our um, mercy cohort and i'm grateful to uh get deeper into your work and your own um way that you kind of navigate these difficult social uh times that we're in right now in regards to race relations and the black lives matter movement and i know that that's not your research but um obviously it, it ties into um, where you've been invested in your own work. So I'm wondering if you can maybe start by just telling me a little bit about the inspiration for your book, Crossing Parish Boundaries. Yeah, it, you know, it's hard not to talk about almost any topic right now and not mm -hmm. think about George Floyd and the protests that are not only sweeping the United States, but the whole world. It's really quite an amazing moment right now. And hopefully, you know, some good things will come out of it. Um, so my experience, um, you know, most directly for coming up with this book was being in graduate school and looking for a dissertation topic um, and uh, like many, a grad student. And a lot of the scholarship that I was studying, I was doing 20th century urban history at Loyola University in Chicago. And Chicago, you know, is a very well studied city. And there was a lot of scholarship, uh, social history on um, white European immigrants coming to the country and uh, setting up neighborhoods and uh, schools and how their families and young people, um, you know, lived in community. And a lot of that was also looking at specifically uh, Roman Catholics because a lot of the immigrants, whether they be Irish, Polish, uh, Czech, German, a lot of them were Catholic and Chicago is a very Catholic city. Uh, on the same hand, on the other hand, I should say, there was a lot of scholarship on the Great Migration and the rich history of African-Americans in um, Chicago, um, particularly the 20th century. But I didn't see a lot on the intersection of those two. And so that interested me. And right when I was starting graduate school, 
a book by John McGreevy, who's a professor at the University of Notre Dame, came out. Uh, and its title um, is called Parish Boundaries, the Catholic Encounter with Race in the 20th Century Urban North. And uh, we read it in graduate seminars, and I was really fascinated by it. And it talked a lot about the conflict between white ethnic Catholics and African-Americans, which there certainly was, um, and it sometimes continues to be up into the 21st century. Um, but I was interested in um, examples of collaboration and cooperation. Um, I had, uh, before going to graduate school, worked in Baltimore at a Catholic Jesuit middle school for um, underprivileged boys, where you know the boys wore white dress shirts with black ties, and I taught Latin and um, I did that. yeah, and um, language arts to them, and um, you know, so I had this kind of experience of uh, Catholic Church and Catholic education, some in some cases being a positive force for education. A lot of African Americans were attracted to the educational opportunities. And when I was an undergraduate at Georgetown University uh, in Washington, DC, I wrote my American Studies senior thesis on the uh, oldest black parish um, in DC and sometimes called the Mother Church of um, Catholic of Black Catholic Churches in the United States, St. Augustine's. So I kind of realized, you know, when you get into a topic, you realize Oh, maybe this has been with me longer than I thought. Um, and I thought even further back when I was in second grade in Omaha, Nebraska, um, which a lot of people don't think of the African-American community in Omaha, but it is significant. Uh, Malcolm Little, who became Malcolm X, was born in North Omaha. Um, but like many cities, very racially segregated. When I was in second grade in the late 1970s, I actually, because of um, mandated busing, you know, the, the busing um, experiment in America, got on a bus in my all white neighborhood and went across town about six miles to an all black neighborhood and had that experience in second grade. And so I think um, it's been kind of with me. I'm a white male, Irish Catholic raised, um, but I also then ended up marrying a black woman and my kids are interracial now. So it is like a lot of our scholarship, um, professional, but personal as well. Right. Well, I love this idea that, um, there's racial conflict that's known within these Catholic parishes, but your own personal edge was to find the positive and to look at the, the anti-racist things that, that were happening within the, the Catholic organizations. Um, how do you feel like this specifically contributes to your field as a historian? Did you feel like that was a departure from the existing literature or were you kind of springboarding off of that book that you mentioned that you had previously read? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, it's clear that there were a lot of examples of racial resistance among um, whites in general in cities in the North, but particularly Catholics, because oftentimes um, mainstream white Protestants or Jewish congregations may have been a little bit more comfortable with picking up and moving to the suburbs. Um, there's a certain territoriality with Catholics that actually goes all the way back to the Council of Trent, <laughs> um, you know, hundreds of years ago, when we talk about parish boundaries. And I think that's why McGreevy titled his book that, that 
this neighborhood is my turf, you know, and if we think of places like South Boston, sometimes referred to as Southie or South side of Chicago, you know, we have these, we see it in, in the movies, we see it, um, you know, in TV and it, there's a reality to it. And we see these Catholic churches that are huge. They're, they're, they're the size of cathedrals where people really felt invested in those neighborhoods. And so that's a positive thing, but the negative was when they felt threatened, you know, by so-called quote unquote invasion of African-Americans, they could be quite um, horrible in resisting that. And so definitely didn't want to deny that history at all. I was just trying to add some nuance and complexity. So that's why I titled my book, you know, Crossing Parish Boundaries, um, Race, Sports and Catholic Youth in Chicago, 1914 to 1954. And I'm really looking at one specific organization uh, that's the real focus of the book called the CYO, uh, which stands for the Catholic Youth Organization. Um, it became a nationwide phenomena and there's still CYO um, programs in the United States today, but it was founded originally in Chicago um, during the depths of the Great Depression in 1930. Um, its founder was the auxiliary bishop of the Catholic Diocese of Chicago. So he was kind of the number two man in charge and his name was Bishop Bernard Scheel. Um, and he had been an athlete as a young person played baseball at the University of Illinois, actually had been recruited by the Chicago White Sox, um, wow. and so really loved sports. Uh, but um, like many young Catholic men at the time, felt, felt, um, felt the calling to the priesthood, so he became a priest. And I kind of paint him in the book, or uh, characterize him in the book as, uh, I use the phrase, muscular Catholic. Um, um, some of the listeners might be, uh, familiar with the term muscular Christianity, which is usually um, uh, associated with uh, Protestant organizations like the YMCA coming out of England in the 1800s um, or the Salvation Army. This idea that um, because in the 1800s, religion started to be seen as very feminine and, you know, it was like mostly the women were going to church and muscular Christianity tried to say, no, like manly man can be, you know, uh, followers of, of Jesus Christ too. The Catholics were behind on that. And so muscular Christianity for Protestants, um, like the YMCA movement and so forth, uh, was in the late 1800s, early 1900s. But by the Depression era, Catholics were kind of coming into their own. Um, they had a political alliance with Franklin Roosevelt. And so in many ways, Shield kind of copies the YMCA and says, this is going to be the Catholic version of that. And it becomes wildly popular. It takes off in uh, dioceses and cities across the country, um, uh, copy it, and it remains decentralized, even though we think of the Catholic Church as being very centralized. Each diocese, each archdiocese, each city ran their own program. Um, ironically, um, I look at the 25-year period, like 1930 1954. Shield resigns in 54, um, and, and the CYO kind of goes on the wane in Chicago, but other cities like nearby, because we're here in Rhode Island, Providence since 1935 has run its own CYO and continues to do so. Cleveland still has theirs. Um, Philadelphia, other cities have kept it up, but um, it's, you know, looking at the experience of young people. Um, and I kind of, I also look at 
kind of pulled on labor history. Um, a labor historian by the name of Liz Cohen wrote a book, Making the New Deal, about Chicago. And she talked about the labor union, the CIO, if you think of the AFL-CIO, and the, the um, Congress of Industrial Organizations. And her argument was, yes, neighborhoods were racially segregated, and I agree with that. And Catholic parishes are racially segregated. So I look at these three all-black Catholic parishes on the south side, and I look at white parishes that they interacted with during sports. Um, and uh, homes, certainly families and marriages remain very racially segregated to the point of kind of joke, um, you know, at that time, if an Irish Catholic and an Italian Catholic were to marry, it was considered interracial marriage right. almost. Um, but there were places like workplaces, like labor unions where blacks and whites could work together, like the CIO that um, Liz Cohen talks about in her book, and I kind of make the same argument about the CYO that, um, you know, obviously didn't <laughs> overcome racism in Chicago. It's still in Chicago and all American cities, but it gave a place for kids to um, encounter people from different backgrounds from them. And I did a lot of oral history interviews, and that was the word that kept coming up um, with people I interviewed was exposure, kind of got me out of my neighborhood, out of my parish, and made me realize that, you know, sports, which is supposed to have an even playing field and supposed to, you know, be equal. If you're the fastest runner, you're the fastest runner, right? If you score the most baskets, you win the basketball game. And boxing, which was the the glamour sport for the CYO, was wildly popular in the 30s. That, I mean, this resonates with me so deeply because through dance, I feel like when we bring together races and religions, we can heal so much because you become more human. You become, you see each other for who they are rather than your race or your religion. And it sounds like maybe so much of that is coming through where you put together these um, different races and religions and it's out of this feeling of community and love for the sport or the game. And then it's not about race anymore. And hopefully that brings people together. Um, I'm wondering what kinds of challenges did you encounter as you were doing this research? I'm always really intrigued with doing historical research because uh, so many of the sources that we used are, are framed through that person's lens. So I'm wondering if if you found, especially in your work, which deals with um, race, if you're seeing people's biases come through or if that's really challenging work to dig through, I'm just curious a little bit about um, your own unique challenges in regards to race and racism and the way that that is, um, the way you navigate through that in your research. Yeah, thank you for asking. And I just, before I answer, I just wanted to add, I totally, I love that comparison with dance. Um, again, not to over romanticize sports or dance, every human institution is imperfect, but there's something about just kind of doing it, you know, just yeah. having a shared experience that, um, you know, I, I would talk to some of these uh, folks that um, were now elderly African Americans and doing these oral histories and they're in their 70s and 80s and recounting back, you know, you know, 60, 70 years earlier. And um, some of them ended up going on to Catholic high schools and would get into places like the University of Notre Dame or Marquette in Milwaukee or Loyola in Chicago. And because Chicago is such a Irish Catholic um, bastion of power, like the 
Mayor Daley and all the Irish Catholic political uh, folks. Some of these people, sports was able, for these African-Americans, it was able to kind of get them in the club, so to speak. They, you know, they couldn't change the color of their skin, but they could be seen as kind of all right because they had that shared experience. Now, there's a lot of negative with that that's very condescending and uh, by the 1970s was sometimes referred to as plantation politics. And I even follow one congressman, um, uh, Ralph Metcalf, who was in the 1932 and 1936 Olympics, ran with Jesse Owens. And he was followed that model of kind of, you know, basically being like a, uh, a black version of the Irish Catholic political machine. And then by the 1970s, he finally spoke out quite appropriately as we're talking about George Floyd and all these issues, police brutality. You know, he finally said, I'm, I'm a black man and I need to speak out. So that maturing process ha happened. But in terms of challenges, um, you know, historians are kind of like um, detectives. We have to work with the clues we're given, you know, we don't have all the materials like a someone building a house would have. So um, in this case, Bishop Shield, who's a fascinating guy, he was in Time Magazine and Newsweek. He was really known on the radio. Um, I compare him to uh, Father Charles Coughlin from um, Detroit, who was known as the radio priest, who kind of is the father of AM, um, angry AM talk radio, and was a, a very parochial and then turned into anti-Semitic um, version of Catholicism. And I feel Shields is kind of an alter ego to him. So Shields fascinating. He and Cardinal Mundelein, his boss, were uh, friends with President Roosevelt. When they go to Washington, D.C., they would lunch at the White House and so forth. Um, but fascinating guy, he left virtually no papers in the archives. Um, he, uh, because he basically had this falling out with the Archdiocese of Chicago and was kind of a persona non grata. And there's rumors that he um, burned his papers, that he took them. He, he left in 1966 for retirement and spent the last three years of his life in Tucson, Arizona, that he took them with him. So I didn't have that. So I had to use a lot of journalistic accounts, oral histories. Um, there were papers at the Archdiocese Archives, papers of other folks. So that was a challenge. Um, meeting people and, and talking to them, it's funny how, as a social historian, I was interested in everyday regular people and wanting to find out what their experiences were as young people. Um, you know, you know, we're we're doing this um, podcast for the uh, the Society for the History of uh, Youth and Children, um, and uh, you know, a lot of those folks from that generation, their sense of history was history is about um, presidents of the United States. You know, history is about generals. History is about uh, Henry Ford and and important people, and so. Yeah. Sometimes they would be reticent to talk uh, because they're like, well, I'm not that important. And then they would, you turn the tape recorder on, they start talking and you're like, oh my gosh, this is wonderful. And, they, and then they would say, well, you know, I've got some scrapbooks up in the attic. Um, maybe you want to see those. And I would say, of course, I want to see those. So that was one issue. Um, my own uh, racial identity, um, not so much with oral history interviews, but it's interesting, even in the 1990s going to do all these oral history interviews in African-American neighborhoods, people would see me and they oftentimes don't see white people in those neighborhoods. It would be like, are you, you know, are you with the police or are you, are you like a priest? Are you a, 
you know, are you you're you're you're, you're are you a social worker? Um, and I had some you know names called at me and things like that. So it was um, humbling about some of the great progress that was made during the Depression in World War II with the CYO. I mean, they had interracial swim meets in the 1930s. This is generation before Brown versus Board of Education, a generation before the Second Vatican Council. Um, but then how things hadn't changed. And I think that's a, to go back to your original thought about where we are right now with the issues about uh, racial inequality, racial injustice. Um, an event happened as I was working on the dissertation in 2001. Um, uh, there was a so the CY really kind of more or less disbanded. It wasn't really active in the second half of the 20th century, but in its place, different sports leagues sprung up, and there was one called the Southside Catholic Conference, and it was made up of uh, almost exclusively white Catholic parishes. Some of them made up of people whose parents or grandparents had fled neighborhoods that turned over to African American in the 1920s or in the 1950s, and um, a pretty well-known Black Catholic parish called St. Sabina's in Chicago applied in the summer of 2001 to join this sports league. And they were just as close as a mile away and, you know, from one of the participants. They had a Catholic parish in good standing with a school that was full, ran a really well-run sports league, and when the parents who ran the Southside Catholics uh, Conference, who were the kind of the athletic directors, so to speak, took a vote in the summer of 2001, they voted against accepting this Catholic parish. And this kind of was an explosive thing. This is um, essentially looking back now because it was a few months before 9-11 and it was before the 2002 Boston Catholic Church abuse scandal. And so it, sometimes it seems like a earlier time, you know, before things that changed our world. But this was from page news. The Cardinal Francis George at the time had to tell the parents, go back in that room, <laughs> come back with a different response. This is one case where the um, the kind of hierarchical top-down approach of the Catholic Church is good because he said, you can't, you have to accept these folks. And But what they were saying was it wasn't going to be safe to go to that neighborhood, even though the Chicago uh, police chief lived on the block where St. Sabina's was, um, and literally a lot of their 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 ancestors, you know, just a generation before, had played at St. Sabina's. But it was a horrible event. As a person, I felt, you know, so bad about it. Um, but it did kind of give me a sense of like why my work was important. I was able to write an op-ed in the um, Chicago Tribune, and so. Um, it's it's like a lot of things in life. I think I've seen progress. I mean, I think it's so wonderful when young people, whether it's through sports or dance or at schools or camps, can interact with each other because, um, you know, oftentimes they don't have the baggage that we older people have, and um, they can that can have a lasting impact. Um, you know, to to meet someone who's different than you and find out the differences that are there and also see the similarities. And um, so I'm pretty idealistic about what programs like this can do. And, um, you know, my goal for the book was to really show just a different slice because the historiography, the literature had really emphasized conflict, which is natural. You know, we're like 
the newspaper, you know, you, you, you write stories about uh, fires. You don't say today was a good day at the <laughs> at the Neary household. You write when there's <laughs> problems, but also to give a fuller picture to, to say, like, there were these um, these pockets of interaction and and also that history doesn't go in a straight line up, you know, because what I was arguing in 2001 was actually Chicago with all its problems was doing a better job, at least within a Catholic context of bringing young people together in the 30s and 40s than they were in the 2000s, which Isn't is which is amazing. Yeah. And part of that is I think the suburbanization, you know, you think of how cities are spread out is people are just geographically further apart. So even though neighborhoods are very segregated in the 30s and 40s, people might still ride on the same streetcar or, you know, still be within the same boundaries of the city limits. And what has happened a lot with you know, interstate highways and suburbanization is just, we physically have gotten farther and farther apart. Right. Uh, it's so interesting, the um, controversy that you just described. You said that was in 2001? Yes. And it's amazing that we have these um, examples over and over of systemic racism in our in our institutions. And over and over again, we're forced to this uh, these moments of, I guess, social reckoning and this heightened awareness about uh, what our role is in undoing racism. And again, it feels like we're at this pivotal moment right now and we have to believe that we are moving forward. So going back to your, your point that it is that you are taking this kind of look at something positive. And, and sometimes I feel like if we have more examples of the positive events, then maybe progress will feel a little bit more attainable if we identify these pockets of authentic community where um, races are coming together and, and, and we see that sense of humanity through community and through just shared activity, then, then maybe the progress doesn't feel like work. <laughs> maybe it's just authentic. So I yeah, think yeah. it's really beautiful. I agree, and 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 I think it's important for us to acknowledge where progress has been made. Um, you know, we're not in 1930s, and there is so much progress, but with that progress comes greater expectations. And I, I'm heartened. You know, we both work with young people, and this and um, this podcast is about the history of childhood and youth. That there's a there's a certain regeneration that comes with young people. There's a certain impatience, I think, that comes with young people that ask the obvious question, you know, the elephant in the room, like, why is it like this? Right. Um, and I feel that they're leading us at this point, you know, um, and, you know, hopefully that'll be the case. I think the other thing we learn in history is that when progress does happen, we can't take it for granted, right? There's nothing that says things can't slide backwards, right? You know, and uh, that there's up and down times. So it will continue to be work, but I hope through things like uh, sports and dance and other things, um, even as we do the work, we can have fun too, which I think um, young people, um, you know, remind us about having fun and hopefully what's important. So um, you and I are both parents, yeah. so and there's keep, this... you, keep you on your toes. <laughs> oh, isn't that the truth? I mean, there's this this balance, I think, where the work happens so much of the work has to happen internally, right? To really see 
um, racism and especially our role in it as white people because of the way we've been socialized and how to, I guess, see clearly through our own whiteness. So you have to go in internally to do the work, but then to also cross boundaries, as you're saying, and just live in authentic community again. Um, I'm wondering in doing all of this research, but also in um, our current social climate, what unanswered questions might you have right now or or future pathways that you see for um for inquiry down the road thanks great question um i think i mean youth sports in general is a pretty understudied topic um as as big as sports is in our society now you know ESPN, which I know they're having a hard time right now because there's no live sports, um, but we sure. were sports hungry. Your your husband works in um, <laughs> in a venue that normally has lots of sporting events um, in management of that venue in Providence. Um, so, you know, we we we've all were young people at one time. Like it's a, you know, youth is like 100% of the human population, right? So the youth in general sometimes does gets understudied among professional historians. Um, even though it's so important and it and it shapes us in such important ways that we don't we spend a lifetime trying to figure out how our childhood shaped us. Um, and then sports are just such a huge part of our society. So I think there's a lot of unanswered. I think there's a lot of opportunity for case studies, um, studies of of uh, examples where sports had a positive influence in, in, in what I was trying to talk about, um, but also cases where, you know, people um, ran into roadblocks with with sports and what the implications of that were as well. Um, and I think a lot of the sports history is done with professional sports and uh, maybe even at the collegiate level and professional level. But I think there's a whole rich area of, um, you know, high school sports and um, youth sports that are really important and raise really important issues. I was at a conference, I, I gave a keynote address a few years ago at the U University of Notre Dame, where actually we're, uh, uh, met with John McGreevy, which was a great um, pleasure. And the people that attended this um, conference were people that were running CYO programs and people who were um, athletic directors of Catholic um, uh, sports programs in different cities all over the country from Seattle to San Antonio to, um, you know, Philadelphia. And they talked about the economic divide we're seeing so much in sports today, you know, that um, we have the elite travel teams and the special camps and so forth, and how, um, you know, not to overstate it, but I think something like sports and education in general and the experience of youth can be a really big part of our democracy and participatory democracy. But if the, um, you know, the public park leagues are not being used, and if you need to spend hundreds of dollars to get the equipment to get on the hockey team or whatever it really creates a divide there as well um so um i think there was something going on in our country during the great depression with the new deal and franklin roosevelt and world war ii where um on the downside obviously there wasn't economic growth but it kind of almost forced a kind of civic engagement and civic participation. And I think sports can play a really positive role in that area. Um, and I think it still does, but I think part of it is we need to cross those boundaries. We need to um, 
have the suburban kids interacting with the kids from the central city um, and having the parents interact as well, you know. Um, so um, in, in, in terms of the field, I think there's a lot of, to learn about that history. And then hopefully I'm a big believer in that, you know, when we learn something in history, then we can apply it to the present. Absolutely. I mean, there's so much that resonates with me deeply in everything you're saying, because I see so many similarities in, in um, the field of dance, just in where we kind of invest our efforts and especially in regards to what is worthwhile of education and scholarly pursuits. And we often kind of dismiss what is recreational or what is entertaining and um, gravitate towards things that are already professional or are deemed artistic. And it, it sounds like you're saying the same thing where we see um, the great benefits of these sports that maybe aren't professional, but they're changing lives and they're changing communities. And that's really worth investigation and documentation of. Uh, yeah, and even positive things like, you know, on the surface, any well-run, I mean, technically well-run dance program is positive, right? Any technically well-run sports program is positive. But if you, you know, um, scrape a little bit below the surface and you come to see, well, there's some baked in structural racism in that dance program or that sports program that has to do with economic class or racial class that's excluding a part of our society. Then we're realizing, you know, wow, we're, we're excluding folks or we're not being open to uh, being um, influenced by different people or having basically different people at the table. Um, and so when a lot of the conversation today um, you know, with the protest and with the marches and the and the and the national international discussion talks about structural uh, racism and institutional racism, and I think we do need to study those institutions. Um, and in the case of youth history, institutions like schools, like school districts, like uh, sports programs, like programs in the fine arts, um, and you know, I I mean, we've had this discussion too about you know ballet versus jazz and what is considered legitimate and illegitimate or less legitimate, I guess. Um, and so um, understanding that history and where, how we got to where we are and then deciding, you know, what do we want to keep and what do we want to shape different in a positive way? Um, I think could be um, really helpful. Right. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, until we can undo those economic disparities that separate um, communities versus something that's deemed uh, on the track towards professional versus something that's purely recreational. I, I don't think that there's any way for us to repair the, the institutions that are fracturing our racial divides. But um, this is just so relevant right now, Tim, what you're what you're saying in your book and the information you're putting out there. And again, I've said this a couple of times, but sharing the positive, um, the benefits within community and the ways that highlighting anti-racism is changing communities. I think that, uh, I hope more people will listen to those stories and will maybe change the ways that we are doing the work within our own communities. I hope so, I hope so as well, yeah. Do you have yeah, any that's... other thoughts or closing, um, anything lingering that we didn't touch upon? Well, just just a big thank you for taking the time. I know you're working on your own book project, which is a 
part two of a textbook that Lindsay's been working on on jazz dance um, with with um, colleagues and collaborators all over the country. Um, and, um, you know, I think you, you may not have thought of yourself as a youth scholar either, and I'm not sure I necessarily thought of myself as a you know history of youth person, but I think I think we both are right, you know, because um, both of these fields start at a young age and they, you know, we, they revealed the values of a society, right? Um, and they're both social and um, interactive and in some ways kind of intimate, uh, you know, they're not within the family, they're not within a, a parent-child or husband-wife type of relationship, but they're, um, you know, it's different than the workplace or it's different than other institutions when you are in a dance troupe together or if you're on a basketball team together there's a a shared camaraderie there's a shared uh there's a levelness to it you know um and if it's done right it's inclusive and so um i do hope um we can learn um from that and um that our scholarship in some small ways are helping uh advance us moving to uh, a better place I hope so too. Thank you so much for um, sharing all of these really wonderful seeds from your research and from your book, Crossing, Crossing Parish Boundaries. Thanks so Thank much. You, Jim. I appreciate it. Take care. Take care. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. SH cy.org